Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Good evening. <laughs> uh, we're going to start a four-week study on the book of Jonah. Um, before we get started, who here has done a who, ha, who here has read the whole book of Jonah? Okay, it's not it's not that big, right? It's like two pages, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's four chapters, and so we're going to break it up into four weeks. And um, you know, this is one of those books that gets a lot of um, negative advertising, I think, probably, in the, specifically in the non-biblical world, because, of course, it's the story of the, the man who gets swallowed by a giant fish, as the picture there states. But there's a lot more to the story than that, as we will see. Um, so let's pray, let's jump in, and let's, let's learn about God's prophet, Jonah. Heavenly Father, tonight we, um, we come because we want to be fed your word. We want to learn from you. We want to learn what your word has for us. And also because we want to be closer to you, Lord. Um, we're going to be reading tonight about how Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, and we want to begin our evening by doing the exact opposite. We want to come into your presence. We want to know you more. We want to sense you. We want to be led by you. We want to have your peace, Lord, the peace that transcends understanding. We want it to guard our minds and our hearts. We want it to instruct our lives. So, Lord, we come on bended knee and ask you to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've got up here on this opening slide here, Wednesday night Bible study, the book of Jonah, prophet, evangelist, and escape artist. Because obviously when we're talking about the character of Jonah, we, we know him as a, or hopefully you know him as a prophet, but also as a, a reluctant prophet, Right? This is so interesting, right? You think somebody who's devoted to the ways of God or devoted to the hearing of his voice would be the exact opposite. But we here run into a character that is, for all intents and purposes, somewhat hard to understand. But in a certain way, I think this actually works in our favor as far as understanding the Bible to be a true book. Because you've probably met people that you don't understand. You've probably dealt with people who are religious or not religious who do things, and you're like, why did they do that? And Jonah is just one of these people that's within the volume of the book who is extremely human, is he not? He displays both a value as well as a reluctance and it makes him very human, and it makes the story, or the character of Jonah at least, very believable because you run into these kinds of things. We're going to begin our study by just looking at 
the first three verses and breaking that down into probably at least half of, half of our time just in those first three verses before moving on to the storm. Let's start at the beginning. Jonah chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, verse 3, arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, or to put another way, away from the presence of the Lord. So let's break this down. This is a, this is a really, like within our first couple of verses, we're like into a major kind of dramatic story here. So as I mentioned before in the intro, this is a book that gets challenged a lot as far as its, its historicity or its, whether or not it is a true historical book. And I would argue that it extremely is. First of all, let's talk about the character Jonah. Jonah here is the son of Amittai. And actually, interestingly enough, I had a friend in my undergrad whose name was Amittai as well. And he was from Israel, so it's kind of interesting. Jonah is mentioned in the Bible more than just here. He's mentioned one other time. And that's in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. If you could please turn there to 2 Kings chapter 14. where we will read beginning actually in verse 23 about the relationship between Jonah as a prophet and the king at that time who was Jeroboam II. So let's go ahead, if you're there, 2 Kings chapter 14. I'm just going to read this portion of scripture beginning in 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So this is a king that's reigning for a long time, 41 years. This is mostly known as Jeroboam II because there was a former Jeroboam. And verse 24 tells us um, of, of this king's character, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Now, just a quick comment here. If you're reading through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you read, this king was a good king, or this king was a bad king, don't stop there. <laughs> because often, some of the good kings that are labeled that way do some really foolish things later on in their kingship. And also, some of the kings who did evil turn around and do other things, or do things that are of value in spite of the fact that they do things that are evil. So, keep reading after those words to see the full story. And that is specifically the case here, as we learn about the prophet Jonah. 
So in verse 25, it tells us what Jeroboam did. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken, now check this out, which God had spoken through who? His servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer, And that's a very small town in Zebulun. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and where, when whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So you see, the Lord is still using this Jeroboam character who did evil to preserve Israel during this time. Verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, all that he had, excuse me, all that he did, his might, how he made war and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, notice those two words and underline them if you will, what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Now this story is really important for understanding the context and the character of who Jonah is. I have up here on the slide but the, the, the passage from 2 Kings and then I also have under there Jeroboam II. Now, he ruled from 793 to 753 BC. And while he reigned, he recaptured Damascus and Hamath. I'm going to show you a map on this next slide so you can kind of get a sense of where we are geographically, okay? So we have uh, Jerusalem and Israel down in the southern portion of this map. We have, there you can see a town towards the north of Israel called Gath Hefer. That is where Jonah was raised. In fact, the name for Gath-Hefer means, means vine that is dug or a vine or, a, or a, um, a, basically a grapevine that is hidden. And then north of that, you'll see Damascus and Hamath. Now, this is in Damascus, which is, of course, in, in modern-day Syria. And now, what had been happening is, first of all, you have to kind of understand the historical context, Right? Just like you grew up in a certain area, you knew certain of the local history, things that happened maybe the generation before you, things that happened maybe two generations before that. This is, this is what was happening during the time and just before the time of Jonah. Solomon and David had done a lot of exploits as far as expanding the territory of Israel. In fact, they had conquered up to Damascus and up to Hamath. And this is about 150 years before this. However, a new empire had been gaining steam and power, and that was the empire of Assyria. And as you can see on this map, if, if you can kind of fall on that orange dotted line that you see towards the top, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And you can see the dotted line going from Nineveh straight west and then down to Hamath and Damascus. And this is where the Assyrian kings were constantly trying to come and conquer this area of the world. In fact, they did succeed, but they succeeded after the book of Jonah. They succeeded in 722 BC in conquering and destroying the nation of Israel. 
Now, just for, for to, to, to not confuse you, remember at this point, there were two nations of, quote, Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom, and then Judah was the southern. Judah was later sacked in 586 BC. So that was much, much later on in history. But at this time, the Assyrians, again, had been coming and trying to attack this land. What we read about in 2 Kings was basically that Israel at this time, through Jonah, Jonah having been given this word from the Lord, had gone back and reconquered the land that David and Solomon at one point had in the kingdom. So imagine if you were Jonah, if you were the the mouthpiece that had received the word of the Lord and you had reconquered all this territory from your enemy, the Assyrians, and you had a part to play with that. That would be like somebody in the State Department who had a word about conquering portions of Iraq, maybe during the Iraq war, and they were really proud of that because they they were like in the inner circle of making said decision. Now, that person who has been responsible for restoring national unity, for restoring land, for restoring maybe perhaps pride to the area of Israel. Uh, Some commentators have said that that Jonah was kind of more like a nationalistic prophet. He was responsible, at least in these times in 2 Kings, of restoring their kingdom, their land. Now imagine that person gets a word of the Lord and the, 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 the armies that they've been, they've been attacking, the, the enemies who have been trying to take land away from them, and who they've finally gotten victory over, now God tells them, hey, why don't you go and warn these people and kind of befriend them and, and, and give them a message from, from me? That's the context of these first three verses of the book of Jonah. He has been going in one direction from what we can tell. And again, I'm, I'm kind of taking and reading into the text a little bit. So, so take this with a grain of salt. But I'm kind of trying, I'm trying to understand where is Jonah? Where is he in his mind? Where is he in his heart? And understand why he's reacting the way he is. He is reluctant. He definitely decides that he doesn't want to do this. But the issue is why? And I think 2 Kings really helps to make a case for understanding historically why he was doing this. So it's almost as though God had him going in a certain direction and Jonah's kind of career, so to speak, as a prophet, or what he thought maybe his role was. Now God was giving him a completely different direction, almost 180 from you know, somebody who's, who's receiving from the Lord and, 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 and inspiring his king to go and take the land to somebody who was supposed to go and now make peace with his enemies. Notice, notice again what is said to him in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now he has to go into the territory of his enemies. He has to deliver a word. He has to cry out. He has to be amongst those people those people may even know who he is, right? Hey, isn't that one of the guys that was connected to the commanders or connected to the king? So this is a risky thing that he's being told to do. And we see that Jonah does not, change, does not take this change of direction from the Lord or this new instruction from the Lord well at all. And I just got to stop there for just a, a second of personal application how are you and me 
when we are told to take a completely new direction in our lives. How do you handle change? When the Lord tells you maybe to talk to somebody who's been maybe mean to you for 20 years, how do you handle that? Or when the Lord tells you, you know what, I really want you to go this direction and it's completely different from the way that you have been going. What's your response to it? I would, I would tell you, very often, I think for myself, the first thought in my mind is usually like a, huh? Why? I don't get it. The ways of the Lord and how he directs his people is not always a straight path. It's a narrow path, and I think that's important to notice from Jesus' words, right? Narrow is the way. And we know that the, the street, of course, that Paul was saved on was called the straight street, but it has some curves to it. When we are given directions from God that are different than what we're used to doing, our natural inclination usually is to buck against it a little bit. And I think it's important for us to realize, okay, am I really, as I'm hearing from the Lord, as I'm, as I'm hearing a direction from him, Am I really following after what he's telling me to do or am I trying to like make this path he's going me on, he's telling me to go on, to go a different direction? Let's get back to the text. So the Lord is giving this instruction to Jonah. Jonah's in the midst of his own life. He has all this stuff with the, the prophets, uh, with the history with Jeroboam and, and, the, and the Assyrians. Um, and I will point this out quickly before we go on. As far as the historicity of this, not only do we have this account from, the, from earlier on in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, but we also have the, the accounts from the Gospels in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of Jonah a number of times in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and also in Luke 11. And we'll get back to this kind of the issue of the supernatural claim and, all the, and, and what that means as far as our understanding of this book um, a little bit further down the way. So anyhow, that's the, the, the geography, that's the history, that's the situation in which Jonah is in. Now let's talk a little bit about who is God in this situation? Who is God? Well, we learn a couple of really important things about who God is in these opening verses. God is, first of all, a sending God. He's one who will speak to his prophets, speak to those who are listening to him. And he doesn't just say, hey, I love you. Why don't you go eat a microwave burrito and sit on your couch? No, he says, I love you. I have a message for you. I want you to go do something with the message I have. He is ascending God. If, if the Lord has never spoken to you and sent you to go do something, be it to a neighbor be it to communicate with a friend, be it to do something in service for others, you may actually need to question whether you are listening to God because he is a sending God. Second of all, he is a speaking God. He actually spoke to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and told him, arise and go, and, um, and, and Jonah heard him. He is a speaking God. And lastly, in culmination of these things, he is a others-oriented God. Now, like I said before, the word Nineveh to Jonah meant 
his enemies. Think about who your enemies are or have been in your life. And then think, has the Lord ever told you to go right into the proverbial hornet's nest in order to speak something or say something? That is a scary place to go. But we need to realize this. The Lord does not see Nineveh just for its wickedness. Just like the Lord didn't see you or I before we became followers of Jesus just for our wickedness. Although he did see that. He saw something more. And we have to remember this. The Lord looks at people very differently than you and I do. We usually look at people for their actions. We look at them for the things they've maybe said publicly. We look at them for what we know about them. But that's like looking at a person in a single dimension. The Lord looks at people. He looks at the others. He looks at even what you and I might call our enemies. He looks at them three-dimensionally. And if you know anything about the end of the book of, of Jonah, when he says to him and talks about these people who do not have someone to lead them into truth, basically, and I'm paraphrasing there, you hear that how the Lord sees others is very different. And it is something that we need to learn about that. In fact, I would say, if you have never prayed the prayer, Lord, help me to see people the way you see them, then you're not going to be taking those steps of actually developing a God-oriented vision or God-oriented view of people, which is probably one of the most important things if you really want to improve relationships. You want to improve a relationship with the person? Ask the Lord to help you to see that person. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a, a dad or a mom. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe it's a grandchild. If you have a problem relationally with anyone at any point, and, you want, and maybe you've gone through this process. I've done this before in error. I'm like, well, if I, if I just understand this about them or if I try to do that activity with them or if I, if I buy more ice cream cones with them, right? Or, or I never serve them green beans again. I'm thinking specifically of my children, okay? Then maybe things will go better. It, it might for like an hour. But if you really want to repair relationships, if you want to get closer to people in a genuine way, ask the Lord to help you to see them the way he does. The Lord has an amazing way of allowing, allowing us to see children, for example, as just people, not just a child. And kids really need that. They need to know that they're just people. He has a way of allowing us to see enemies or people maybe that we run, uh, we kind of bump into the wrong way. Maybe it's at work or in, in, in family. And we just don't understand why they are the way they are. He has an amazing way of saying, hey, just look at them the way I do. This is the Lord's perspective, and he's an others-oriented God, and he wants us to be that way too. In fact, I would say that these three characteristics of who God is in the story of Jonah are probably maybe just as important as the story itself. Is just knowing God more and his nature and his character and who he is. We can get so stuck in, in Jonah and his rebellion and his fleeing and his purposes, his humanity, that we can skip and forget who is God in the story. What do we learn about the Lord in the story? And the Lord wants us to be more like him, right? So we also need to be sent people, speaking people, others-oriented people.
Now, one final thing about this issue of how the Lord sees Nineveh is that he does tell Jonah that the wickedness has come up before me. So, just as a kind of an addition to this issue of, of, of seeing others, if you're aware of something wrong that somebody's doing, that's okay. The Lord sees that too. We're not supposed to blot that out or pretend those things are not happening. But we should know that the Lord sees them and the Lord will take care of those things in the right time. There's a great amount of peace in being able to tell the Lord, Lord, you know what's going on in my life. The Lord, you know what's going on in their life and ask the Lord to work it out. But the Lord does see the wickedness. And what, is, what, do, we, what do we learn about the Lord in, and even in that? And he wants to deal with it. He's not silent on the issue of wickedness. He, he doesn't, he's, isn't, he's not discompassionate. He's not a God that says, well, maybe they're going to get it right today or maybe that. No, no, when it comes before him, prayers have been offered. People have been talking to him about Nineveh. People have been talking to him about Assyria. He's, he's well aware of what's going on there. The Lord knows about the problems that people are facing. He even knows about the problems that your enemies are facing, and he cares about them. Now, that's the perspective of the Lord. That's what we learn about the Lord. But what do we now learn about Jonah? We know that Jonah is not so excited about these things. I'm sorry, this is actually a slide too early. Jonah is not too excited. And we read in verse 3, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, where's Tarshish? Well, let me show you back to this map. Um, so we have gath Hefer, we have Jerusalem. Joppa, he goes to, which is a port city. In fact, that's the same city. Does anybody recognize Joppa from the New Testament? Joppa was a city where, um, where Paul was sent in order to hear... Uh, from the tanner before Paul or Saul got saved. So there are some interesting things here, parallels um, and details that map onto the life of Paul, interestingly enough. And of course, Paul ended up going on a lot of ship journeys off into the Mediterranean. So you look at some of the maps here with Jonah, and it, 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 there, is, there are some, a couple of similarities with the maps that you'll see with Paul's three, and some would say four, missionary journeys. Anyhow, so he goes to Joppa. Jonah does, right? So he's, he's escaping. He wants to go right to the sea. And if you'll notice, Nineveh is exactly the opposite way. But for Jonah to go to Joppa is not enough. Now he has to get on a ship from Joppa. And remember this, ships are not free, so he's having to pay for passage to get on a ship, right? He's like, I got to go on a cruise. And where is Tarshish? Some people believe Tarshish is up north of here in the Taurus Mountains, which is modern-day Turkey. But most commentators believe that Tarshish is actually way over in Spain. Now, that's a long way to run, right? I mean, he could have just gone, like, to the island of Cyprus. You'll see that just off, off the west coast here. But that's not far enough. No, he has to go way past, and this is, I mean, these are ships back in the old day, right? These are not going to be fat, this is not a speedboat, right? It's like taking a paddleboard from here to, I don't know, the, to somewhere in South America. Like, it would take a while. 
and not cheap, right? Because getting on a ship was not a, well, not a simple thing to do. This, is, this would, would require a certain amount of money. So here's Jonah. He's had a job as a prophet. He's been successful from what we can tell from the, even that brief passage in 2 Kings. He gets a single word from the Lord to go and speak to his enemies. And what does he do? He runs hard in the opposite direction. And then he sails hard in the opposite direction. And I think one of the saddest things about this is not just that he's leaving, but this, this saying that we read about in verse 3, he rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. And we read that again at the end of the verse. He went down into it, into the boat, to go with them to Tarshish. Again, way out of the way. Why? To go from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to park here for a second. What is the presence of the Lord? We sing songs about it, right? Your presence, Lord. That's a very common like, song that we sing nowadays, right? We talk about being close to God's presence. Usually when you think about coming to a gathering of a local church or a body of Christ, and you think about the presence of the Lord, you would, if, you could, if you could have everybody raise their hands and be like, hey, what do you guys want tonight as we, as we meet together and study the word or we worship or sing? They would probably all agree and say, well, we're trying to get close to the presence of the Lord, right? That's a goal of Christians, generally speaking. But is it? Because the presence of the Lord is not just the happy, good feeling that you get when the Lord like maybe blesses you while you're worshiping him or gives you that sense of supernatural peace. That is part of it. But the Lord sometimes with his presence also communicates hard truths. That's the presence of the Lord too. Sometimes we are supposed to leave our church gatherings our fellowships, and we are supposed to have that sense of emotional elation where we're like, oh, I've never been closer to the Lord. I love the Lord. He's forgiven all my sins. I, I love spending time with them. I love being with people. Oh, this, this place is like a family. Have you ever said that to yourself? This place is like a family. I get to live, be with these people. This is awesome. There are other times where you will be just as much in the presence of the Lord and a hard word has come. That, tell, that the Lord has told you something, you know what, Jeff, you got to knock that out, man. Or, hey, man, this, this area of your life is, is not submitted before me. Or maybe you run into a relationship problem. And you're like, wow, I, I thought this was going to go really well, but this is a little bit rocky. What are we tempted to do when we have those moments, those hard words? Well, I'll tell you what I'm tempted to do. I'm tempted to do exactly what Jonah's doing. I'm tempted to flee because I have not equated that the presence of the Lord is just as much in the hard sayings 
and in the teachings and the things that have to get down to really continue to mold and make me. You know, I'm like, you're like a, I'm a, you're like a cup, right? Or a, a bowl that's on, on the wheel of life. You're the clay. He's shaping you. Sometimes it's a beautiful day and you're like, hey, look, I'm a beautiful pot today. That's awesome. Other times he's like, squish, restart. You know, the squish days of being reformed as a pot are not fun, are they? When he points out something, but, but here's, here's what I'm getting at. The presence of the Lord is just his voice. And it may be something that's going to lift you up some days, but it may be something that's going to kind of reform you other days. But the voice itself is what the presence is. It's not whether you, you esteem it highly or whether you regard it to be a good or bad thing that should be the ultimate deciding factor in your life. And for so many people, it is. If it's a positive thing, they'll call that the presence of the Lord. If it's a negative thing, they'll say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe Satan was in that fellowship this morning. I mean, it's absolutely silly to say that, but people think that. And people feel that, and they make entire life decisions based on those feelings. Jonah was in such a camp. He had a word from the Lord he did not like, he did not want to obey, he did not really desire to ever hear. He may have even considered himself to be shocked. But it was God's voice that was the presence of the Lord. And so for him, the only thing he knew how to do was to get away from it. And brothers and sisters, I must tell you, of all the things to teach on in a church gathering, to teach on as far as, as, as the emotions of people and their responses to things, this issue of staying close to the Lord no matter what he does say to you is of supreme importance in the maturing of every single person in a body of Christ. When the Lord comes to you with a, with a hard word, if I may, I'm going to make a suggestion. Tell him, Lord, I don't know how to respond to this, but thank you for still speaking to me about it. Because it's part of his love. Him communicating things that you don't like is a part of his love for you, right? We read about this in the New Testament, that the Lord chastens those whom he loves because it's a part of it. Jonah is in a place where he has not yet experienced that, or at least not on this level, where he's fighting that if a word comes from the Lord that is different, he's going to be he's bucking against it, right? He's kind of like, like Paul in a certain sense, right? Jesus says to Paul, how hard is it to kick against the goads, right? This, this, this sharp stick that was coming against Paul and kind of moving him and shake, shaping him. And Paul was just re- resisting it with all of his might, do you think Paul later looked upon that, that goad that was Christ and probably later in, a thought, later in his life thought, why did I push so hard against that? Why was, I, why was I pushing so hard against the voice of the Lord, which is the presence of the Lord? So when you get a word, cherish it. <laughs> be it hard, be it beautiful, cherish it because that is his presence. When you're not able to hear a word from the Lord, that's when you need to be more concerned, not just what the word itself is.
And I'm going to sure there's going to be a lot of hallelujahs and amens after a statement like that. But I needed to say it. So he's, he's running away from the presence of the Lord. And of course, uh, just to conclude this, in a certain kind of way, is it even possible to do that? No, right? I mean, we read about this in the Psalms, like, where can I go from your presence, Lord? It's, it's impossible because God is God, right? <laughs> he, he doesn't say, well, I, I won't go there. You know, he, he, he may keep his peace if you don't want to talk to him. He, he may keep his peace and wait until you're ready to speak and to hear. But it is technically impossible to actually flee from his presence. But Jonah does what he thinks is going to be the possible way. Of course, he finds out later that that's an impossible thing to do. Anyhow, verses one through three, that's already taken a little bit of time, but I hope you understand the reason why we need to go through this. Set up the context, set up the understanding of who God is. And now we see, and we'll learn from verse four on, God's reaction to Jonah fleeing from his presence. God's response, verse 4, is to send a storm. Let's read. Verse 4. But the Lord sent Jonah a email that said, Oh, Jonah, I love you so much. Please come back. Please come back. No. (laughs) No, that's not what it says. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Again, these are kind of vestiges of, of what we will read about in, with Paul as well, right? Although in a, in, a, in a positive sense, in fact. Then the mariners, verse 5, were afraid and every man cried out to his God. So these were, these were polytheistic mariners. They were of different faiths, of different religions, And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. It's a common common thing that happens when ships are in peril. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. How does Jonah emotionally take the things that are hard? He naps. That's his emotional response. And I got to tell you, sometimes when things are hard for me too, I also go and take a nap. So I'm not... not, not, uh, uh, um, mad here at Jonah. I understand that, that need. But then, verse 6, so the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Now, this is quite interesting, right? Jonah doesn't really know this guy. He's a far away from home. He's sleeping. He probably is the only one that is sleeping, right? in this storm, and it actually draws the attention of everyone else because he's doing something that no one else is doing in a storm situation, right? This has been rocking and all kinds of stuff, and I mean, they wouldn't have done these things unless it was a really serious affair. So it draws the attention of the captain, and the captain is the one who's trying to get this sleeper up. Now, we got to remember, Jonah was a prophet, he had heard from the Lord the clear direction about what to do. And here he is, sleeping, trying to, again, escape yet further. He's already run away, and now he's running away through by sleeping. 
And to the point where even though he's supposed to be the one to speak, I mean, that's a, that's a prophet's job, right? Like job number one, right? Is to speak what the Lord tells you to speak if you're a prophet. That's your job. And here he is, the one person who's not speaking. So now, not only is he fleeing, but he's not even doing what his job tells him that he's supposed to do, the thing he's been trained in. And the captain notices and comes to him. Ask him to call on his God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we will not perish. And now we're not told that Jonah does. He just kind of hears. And if you can imagine the scene, that Jonah's been sleeping in the decks, the lowest part of the... He wakes up, the captain's in his face, kind of maybe yelling at him or saying, doing this. And he doesn't do anything. So the story continues and the drama continues. And they said to one another, this is the other mariners, come let us cast lots that we may know for... No, who's, for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and they must have had a lot there for Jonah. You know, you remember the old game of drawing straws, right? Where one straw was shorter. That's pretty much what casting lots was. And the short straw, or the lot, came and fell on Jonah. So again, their attention is turned back to this sleeper. And then they said to him, Please tell us, for... For whose cause is this trouble upon us? So they, they don't even know that it's him. They're just saying, You've, you have something to do with this situation. You, you have something that you need to tell us about this. What is your occupation, they ask. Now they're getting personal. <laughs> What's your name? Where do you come from? What's your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, if you were Jonah, you'd know that these beans are about to be spilled because he's going to have to come back and deal with the decision that he made at the beginning of this chapter. And so he says to them, verse 9, I am a Hebrew. Now that's, just so you know, those words would have been very strong words because the Hebrew people were known in this region for a variety of supernatural things that had happened. The Hebrews were part of the, the story of the parting of the Red Sea. The Hebrews had been part of the plagues in Egypt. The Hebrews were part of the, 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 uh, the stories of Joshua and the, the tearing down of the city of Jericho supernaturally. They were known in this part of the world. They weren't like, who, 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 what kind of people is that? What, what have you guys done? No, they were known as having a God of supernatural ability. So that, even of itself, would have meant a long thing, a, a lot to these people, these other mariners, that these other gods. But he goes on, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Let's just, let's, let's, let's account for where we are in the story. God has given a word to Jonah. He's rejected it. He's rejected the instruction. God sends a storm. And I, I, I will note this also on this slide here. God sends a storm. Notice, he doesn't just decide to get a new prophet. He goes after those who have disobeyed his word. He doesn't leave them alone. 
He could have easily gotten somebody else, right? Oh, Jonah's out. Let's get Bill. He doesn't do that. And now we learn about Jonah and we learn about his relationship with God. And this is what happens in storms. In storms of your life, just as with this storm, a person is broken down to their bare essentials and you find out these things. You see other people see you go through storms. They see what you're made of. You see what other people are made of as they go through their storms. Your church family, your non-church family. Your witness is tested. And this last one, which is really important, is what you really believe about who God is is shown. That kind of rises, the cream rises to the top. And we read here really important stuff to know about Jonah. And, and, and I want to point this out. When, when you become a Christian, you begin a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. A relationship. And the more you invest in that relationship, the more you know about this person, Jesus, and the more you know about God the Father, and the more you know about the Holy Spirit. And the more you know about all these three members of the Trinity, the more you know about the heart of God, the mind of God, the more understanding you have about who he is, and the easier it becomes to follow him even when those hard words come. Because you know him and you've learned to trust him, or at least you are learning to trust him. What we see here in Jonah's response when he finally has to say, look, this is who I am. You know, have you ever had one of those moments in your life? Look, like you, you've had to say it to, to workers, like this is, all I, this is all I've got, right? This is, this is me. Take it or leave it. Well, this is what Jonah is telling us when he has his take it or leave it speech. I'm a Hebrew. I, I, I have a culture of people that I belong to. I come, I'm, I'm, I'm from a heritage, right? Just like, like I would say, I'm a Lee, so I'm a, from the family of Lees, and I go, it's traced back, and certain, certain things are known of the Lees, good, good or bad, and there's a, there's a mixture in my family. And I fear the Lord. So he's telling them, look, I have this relationship, but it's a fear relationship. That's, that's really important here. He doesn't say, and I am a Hebrew, and I love the Lord. No, he doesn't say that. And it's not wrong to fear the Lord. But if it shouldn't be only fear, fear is part of the relationship. Love is a big part of it too. That is not here. He says he fears Yahweh. And then how does he describe this Yahweh? Does he say Yahweh as, as other prophets do, like, like Micah or, or Moses, great and merciful and compassionate? You know, in fact, I don't know if you know this about, like, about Moses, but the longer Moses spends with, with God, the, the greater his admiration for God becomes. And this is generally speaking, the same thing is true with Abraham. They begin the relationship. They begin to know them more and more. And by the end, they're more, their language is like almost like flowery English prose when they talk about God, right? Of his, his, his mercy and his compassion and these things because they see him more fully. Where's Jonah? I fear the Lord. And then what does he think the Lord is? He simply says, the God of heaven, 
who made the sea and dry land. And I don't know if you, if you notice this. This is, this is a subtle distinction within the text, right? The God of heaven. So he's placing God outside of where he is. So he's there, the God of heaven. And then what did he do? And he made the sea and the dry land. And you see what he's saying? What he's saying here is God's up there and he made this and I'm down here. And you can almost hear and never the twain shall meet. Jonah has experienced the Lord giving him, giving him knowledge, but what was that knowledge that he gained in 2 Kings all about? It was all about conquest. It was all about defeating another people. Here he's being given a completely different message about going and speaking to and restoring people, telling them about their wickedness, dealing with the moral issue. Jonah does not yet have a relationship with the Lord that acknowledges the love of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord. And a lot is told to us in this response. And I can even, I almost wonder if it's one of these moments, and, and, and as we go through Jonah, you can maybe answer this question for yourself. I wonder if it's one of these moments, maybe you've had one of these too, where you, you, you say that thing about yourself or you say that thing about, about who God is, and you almost shock yourself by what comes out of your own mouth. Now, I wish Jonah would have been more shocked by what came out of his mouth because as revealing as it was, I don't think he quite heard it the way that maybe you and I would, would hear it. And that's part of what the Lord is trying to speak to us through this book. Is like, look at where and see where Jonah is relationally to me and then check in yourself. Do you, see, do you see God as just the maker, the one who's far away? Do you see him as close, as the one who directs your steps day by day? Do you see him as one who can guide your thoughts, your thinking? Where are you in your relationship with the Lord? This is a central question for all of us as we're learning about Jonah because we're supposed to reflect and think about these things for ourselves as well. Let's move on. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And that relates Ben back to this issue of him being a Hebrew, right? They're exceedingly afraid. <gasps> they basically say, oh, you are part of, of that group that has this amazing supernatural God? Wow. And they said to him, why have you done this? Now, what, what did they think he did? They think he had to do something with the storm. And guess what? They were right. For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So he has also in that conversation told them at some point that he was leaving from what God had told him to do. So now they're like, this is all on you, man. <laughs> you have set this whole problem up. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. So they're having this discussion and things are not calming down. It's getting worse. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now that's quite a statement. For him to realize that all this has happened because he has rejected a word from God. 
Now, I don't know if you've rejected God's word at some point in your life, or maybe you're in the season where you're rejecting it right now, but the Lord will often bring a storm into your life. He'll bring a tempest. He'll bring something that's just rocking until you come to terms with that word. Why again? Because the, lo- the Lord loves you. <laughs> he loves you. And he knows that for you to follow the word, even if you have to go through a storm in order to receive it, is the best possible thing for you. We often want storms to be over. Well, guess what? Technically, God does too. (laughs) But he doesn't want you to not learn the thing you're supposed to learn in the storm before he calms it. Nevertheless, verse 13, so he says, throw me into the sea. But the men, in verse 13, it says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. So they're trying to probably get back to Joppa. They don't throw him in. They're like, that's crazy talk. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Now, verse 14, this is fantastic. Therefore, they cried out to who? The Lord. Now, this is fascinating, right? The one who actually knows the Lord, who's heard his voice, who's been given instruction, has not cried out to the Lord in this situation, has he? He's identified that it's his fault that this is happening. He's kind of maybe quarter repented. I'm not sure what you would call it as far as percentages. Maybe, you know, 16% repentance. He's, 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 He's at least laid claim to the fact that he's at fault. But as far as crying out to the Lord, usually when you're in the storm, it makes sense to cry out to him. But who does? It's the foreigners. It's the other mariners who are of a completely different religion, right? They're, they've been talking about whose God caused this and maybe the, the God of this and the God of that and who, who knows how I mean, There's a lot of gods that are spoken about there in the pantheon. By the way, just in case you're un, you don't understand that term pantheon, Pan means many, Theo means God. So the pantheon is just like any number of gods, whether it's you know the Greek gods, the Roman gods, or at this time the Assyrian gods, or et cetera, et cetera. So the pantheon is all of them that are not Yahweh. But what happens, and this is so interesting, even if a Christian is, is disobeying and something happens in their life, the Lord can use that to cause other people to come near the God that the Christian is not coming near. That's weird, right? I'm not suggesting that you do that as a strategy because that's not a strategy. But the Lord is not above using a person's disobedience to help somebody to cry out to him. And that's what we're seeing here, which is interesting. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray. Now they're not just crying out, they're praying this is a revival, and the preacher is trying to get into the ocean. I mean, this is just crazy. There's a revival happening on a boat. Somebody who, who should have been the guest speaker, right, Jonah, is quiet. But there's still a revival, which is fascinating. We pray, O oh Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. They're like, he's, he's wrong, but we're coming to you. And do not charge us with innocent blood. Like, it's not our fault. And indeed, it wasn't. It wasn't their fault. 
For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This is just fascinating. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So as soon as they did that, as soon as they, they're crying out, they're pleading, they're praying, they're talking. Again, and every time you see O, o Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized in the Bible, that's Yahweh. That is our God's name. This is not just some, you know, kind of generic. No, this is the name above all names. And known as that, right? The Hebrews related to the Hebrews of Yahweh or Jehovah or how, that's the same word, right, of, of Lord. In fact, the word, the word Lord capitalized, you probably have heard teachings on this, but just to make sure, um, in the Hebrew basically points out to, uh, anglicized, goes to Y-H-W-H. That's why it's a four-letter word. And when you insert vowels, which in the ancient Hebrew did not have vowel points, they then inserted vowels to say Yehovah, but it's Y-H-W-H, and you insert the vowels, and that's how you get either Yahweh, which has a vowel between the Y and the H, and then the W and the, and the Y, and the Y between the H. I'm, I'm getting confused. I'm sorry. I'm just talking about it. Or inserts vowels different ways, and that's how we get those two different names, either Yahweh or Yehovah. But they're, they're talking about the same name. It's God's name. And they're crying out to him. And not only that, but look what happens in the next verse. After the sea ceases from its raging, which means they realize now that this is truly the supernatural God of the Hebrews, right? A supernatural thing has happened in the storm and a supernatural thing of the storm ceasing, right? Then, verse 16, then the men, the men, the mariners, the non-believers, the non-Hebrews feared the Lord exceedingly, now, Jonah feared God. He, t- he told them about it. But what do they do after this fear? It says, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now, you've probably heard about people in situations where they make, they make promises to God when they're going through a trial, right? This is not uncommon. But these guys are pretty high in character for us to at least note. We don't know what became of their relationship with Yahweh. We're not told that in the story, but it's a, it's a minor issue that is kind of interesting. These guys went beyond just saying, oh Lord, save me, and if you save me, then I'll be better when I get back home to my family, which is what a lot of people say. A lot of women say that, men say that when they're in the midst, oh Lord, I'll go back and I'll, I'll make things right with my sister, or I'll, or I'll do right on the debt that I owe, or I'll, I'll clean this up, or whatever it is that the, their guilty conscience is weighing on them. But these men, they go above and beyond. They offer a sacrifice, which means they have to take something. They're already not a lot of stuff on the boat. They threw a lot of it off. So maybe, maybe it's a grain sacrifice. Maybe it's, maybe it's an animal that they sacrifice. I don't know. They do something. And they take vows. So again, there's a revival happening on the boat. There's a religious fervor. There's, there's people coming to Yahweh in the midst of this storm. But let's go back to Jonah. He's just been thrown off the boat. Did Jonah cry out to the Lord a single time? No. Did he even speak to the Lord? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry I've run from your presence. No. He just tells the guys, look, I'm running, so just throw me off. He is not willing (laughs) 
Something in his heart is just stubborn, is just stuck, whether it's this message about going to Nineveh, which probably is, and it's stuck so hard that even after a storm in a sea, even after being thrown overboard, even after seeing other people respond to God in his midst, right? They were beginning to make this turn, this turn to Yahweh while he was there. Now, I don't know about you, but I think even if I was stubborn enough to get on the boat and I saw this, I would be like, oh, Lord, you're doing like a work on the boat. Okay, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Maybe I'll minister to these guys. Maybe I'll tell them about some of the history. Maybe I'll tell them about some of the things that I've, I've learned from Amitai, my dad, in my role of prophet. He's probably been exposed to a, a large portion of the Old Testament. He probably knows about the Pentateuch. knows the stories of Moses, Joshua, da 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 David, Solomon, all the things that... Does any of this come up? Nothing. And that's probably the most shocking thing for me about this first chapter, is here's Jonah. And he's, he's being pulled apart by the situation. But his stubbornness is so severe that even in the midst of other people coming to his God, and they're leaving their gods in order to do that, at least temporarily, that doesn't get his attention either. He's that stubborn. Let's talk about stubbornness. Everybody's favorite subject, right? Now, stubbornness, I want to point out, is a, is a two-edged sword. If you know people who are stubborn, or let's say, or maybe you're a stubborn, good. Good. Because it's what the stubbornness is about that is the most important issue. Someone, for example, who is stubborn and wants to devote their life only to focusing on the Lord is stubborn to unto the Lord. I think probably a very common example of, of a stubborn person that we read about in the Bible is, is the Apostle Paul. Here is a person who was stubborn. Now, at the beginning, when he was stubborn to the wrong thing, it really was a deficit in his personality because it was focused in the wrong way. Once he became a follower of Jesus Christ, his stubbornness was a huge asset, was it not? It led him to have such zeal in now going this direction that nothing could stop him. Stonings, shipwrecks, relational problems, not knowing which direction to go, you know, problems, soothsayers, all kinds of things, prisonments, right? I remember when Pastor Aaron taught on Paul and, and Paul's perspective when he was put in prison and locked to other people was, was not, ah, oh, I'm locked in this jail, but his perspective was, <laughs> you're locked to me. You're going you're gonna to hear about my God. He saw that. So stubbornness is a good thing if it's to the right thing. And I think this kind of gets back to, again, how you see people and how you see personalities and how you see them in this world. If you know someone who is stubborn, don't pray for them to lose their stubbornness. 
pray for the Lord to use their stubbornness and direct it. If you see somebody who is bold, don't tell them to lose their boldness. Pray and ask the Lord to equip them to be bold in what is good. Or somebody who is zealous. You don't want them to lose their zeal. You want their zeal to be directed. And this is one of the things for me as, as, a, as a dad of, of rather small children that my wife and I, we talk about a lot. The character of our children. And I think it's important to understand that people have a God-given or God-ordained personality. They do. They, they have a character. They have a way about them. Our job in shepherding in churches, in, in parenting and dealing with other people, is not to get them to change their personality. No, no, that's not it at all. It's to equip and direct that personality to be towards the things of the Lord, to be towards the things that are holy, to be the, towards the things that are of enduring value because, the, because God can use them. Jonah, unfortunately, in this story, and we don't even know towards the end, unfortunately doesn't quite seem to get past this issue of being stubborn for the right thing. Now, I'm not going to preach on that because I don't think there's really much of a point to be made, but I do think it's important to at least establish that within how we look at other people, not just Jonah. You might look at Jonah and be like, well, probably could have done a couple steps better, and he probably could have, but nevertheless, we're not even done with the first chapter. Let's finish this out, and then you guys can, can get home to your families so the men feared the Lord. We're back on the boat. They've thrown him over. They, they now begin to fear. They begin to sacrifice. They begin to make vows. Again, a revival is happening on the boat, and the preacher is gone. And then verse 17, to, find, to, to finish our first chapter. Now, the Lord, again, what is the Lord doing? The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is the sentence that we, we learn about. I think we're kind of past this slide here. This is the sentence that when you talk to most people who are not people who study God's word or who know the Lord, this is the sentence that keeps people from thinking that the book of Jonah is a historical reality. Because right at that point, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's the classic like record scratch. You mean to tell me that this prophet, reticent, stubborn, escape artist, lives inside of a great fish for three days? Come on. Come on, they'd say. I want to go to reality school, they'd say. Come on, you can't believe that. You can't believe that. And if you've ever dealt with something like that, maybe you've dealt with that. I, I remember when I first read it, I, was, I also thought, hmm. How do you deal with that question? Well, if you have your Bible with you, 
Go back to the very first sentence of the Bible. Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From, now it doesn't say this in the text, but we know this, from nothing. The entire universe, this planet in which we live, and then the rest of the creation following from that. If you can believe that sentence, then this sentence in Jonah should be not a problem at all. (laughs) Because we're talking about the Lord, Yahweh, who made all things. For him to take, for him, a small you know, fish or mammal, whatever it was, whether it was a fish or a whale, we're not sure, to direct it and cause it to do something that is, yes, unusual, is just not a big deal when he's already formed the Andromeda strain over here, when he's created black holes over here, when he's created a sun here and a moon and put them exactly in this place so that when they go around and match just at the right place 400 miles away, however many thousands of miles away, and they end up being the same size because of perspective, then the control of a fish, in, and not only that, but in use to not harm somebody, but to rescue them, is simply part of his majesty. Now, I, I understand people will, will doubt that, maybe even would scoff at that, but if you can go back and understand who made this whole thing, this sentence of, being, of having a great fish preparing to rescue a person is simply not that big a deal. It's far less miraculous than the first sentence of Genesis and the first chapters. But let's look again. We talked before about who, who is God in the book of Jonah. And I, I want to point this out at, as we close here as well. Who is the Lord in the book of Jonah? He's one who's been rejected. His word, his word went forth, his presence, and Jonah was leaving from it. He, his, his name had been used as reference um, as Jonah spoke about who he was. These other people began to look at him with great reverence and just pray to him. At any point, this Lord of ours could again have said, you know what? Forget it, Jonah. I'm just, I'm done with you. And again, what do we learn about God? He's not done with the most stubborn person, most stubborn prophet at all. In fact, far from it, he, he creates a miraculous way to save him. And, and even beyond that, he uses this miraculous way to be a sign and testament of the Messiah that would come and who would be delivered from three days of death. Jonah is a prophet that actually speaks to, and one of the only prophets that actually speaks to the issue of resurrection in the Old Testament. And as we will learn next week in, in the prayer that he then offers when being inside the belly of that, of that great beast, 
Some amazing things come forward, and I look forward to studying that with you. But who is this? Who is this Lord? He will design the most amazing, far-fetched ways to rescue you and me, even when we've gotten ourselves into trouble. And that's the thing I want to leave with you tonight. This is the God of the Bible, who when someone has gone away and they're in the middle of the Mediterranean, says, I know how to rescue him. I'm not just going to send another ship. I'm not going to just send a person. I'm going to send my creature, a creature that he will live inside of for three days. I don't want to imagine the stink and the stench of being in there, what that was like. I mean, your imagination can run wild, but, but let's think about who is the Lord that would do that. That's Yahweh. He would, who would receive the praise and vows and sacrifices of strangers on a ship and who would prepare a fish to rescue him. This is our God. This is Yahweh, who uses a stubborn person, an incredibly stubborn person, and still goes after him. Kind of like the prod- This is kind of like a prodigal son kind of story, isn't it? And he prepares a great fish to rescue him because is God done with the prophet Jonah? No. And to close, is God done with you? If you're alive and listening to me speak, if you're hearing this, the answer is no. Because God isn't done with people. He seeks after them till their last day. Because all he wants is for his kids to be under his wings. I always think about the, the, the amazing story that Jesus has when he comes into to Jerusalem. And he's, he's just crying. He's, just, he's mourning. He says, oh. I'm paraphrasing here, but like, oh, guys, come on. Don't you know? Don't you know? All I want to do is gather you as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings to just, all he wants is to have his kids with him in the fold, protected, covered. That's God. That's who he is. And so as we close tonight, let's pray and thank the Lord for his word. Lord, I'm thankful in reading this to know more about who you are in this story. And while I can wrestle with who Jonah is and the why, I'm, I'm really just astounded about who you are. You're the God who doesn't give up on people. You're the God who chases down people who are stubborn. You're the God who uses people even when they want to run from your presence because you are the God of love. And yes, Lord, you ask us to, to fear you, to, to respect you. But you also ask us to know your love as we look at your law. To know your love as we look at your mercy and, and, and how you chase after us and how you desire to have a relationship with us. And Lord, help us to be just filled with awe in who you are. And for these who are gathered here today, for these who would be listening to this at another time, would you just bless them, Lord? Would you help them to know that even if they've been stubborn, that they can choose to be stubborn for you? That if they've been running, that they can, they can turn and say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender. I'm going to be led by you. Lord, lead me. I don't want to run from your presence anymore. 
And Lord, in all these things, we, we lay them at the altar. We lay them down. And we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.